In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we come to the end, or close to the end of, of the Gospel of Luke, we ask your blessing on our efforts because of the most important point in Jesus' life, his death and his passion and death. So we ask you to help us to understand what it is that you want us to know and constantly remember, particularly as we go into uh, Holy Week and the Holy Season of Easter in a few weeks. So we ask your blessing on our efforts tonight and as we go forward in studying this gospel. So we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Tonight we'll be discussing chapters 21 through 23, which leaves only one more chapter, but that will be for next week because of the importance of that particular chapter and the fact that I want to do a, a summary uh, next week of all of the Gospel of Luke, particularly, uh, well, the most important points. But as your home reading assignment paper will say, what we're going to do next week is to have you tell me what was the most important things that you remember or learned in this session here. We'll put them up on the board, and then we'll try to make some kind of a, a statement out of it. I've done this before, and it seems to work well and is interesting because different people have different ideas and concepts of what was important to them. And so when we compare and listen to what other people say, it helps us to get a better appreciation for the whole. So that that is next week. Tonight, we are going to be covering primarily the death of Christ, the passion that he went through and his death. Now, you've all heard these stories many, many times, I'm sure. But like many things that you hear over and over and over uh, in the most recent time, you sort of kind of let it drift through one ear and out the other without giving it too much thought. And so what I want to do tonight is really talk about the whys and the wherefores. Why did this happen? Why? Where did it come from? What was the significance and the meaning of it? You know the details. You know the story and what happened and so forth. And we'll go through it quickly, but I want to really get into helping you to understand what the background is, because the death of Christ was the climax of God's whole plan of salvation. And we talked about this in the first meeting, God's plan of salvation. And the last session that we had last fall uh, was all about God's plan of salvation. And in the diagram that uh, you were given when we first started out, uh, it showed really that Christ came to this earth for a very specific purpose. Well, I should say for very specific purposes. There's more than one. But the primary one was his death and resurrection. 
And you have to kind of understand that and the why of that in order to appreciate all of it. So let's kind of concentrate on that. And if you will, um, you can still ask questions as we go along. But unless they are really important questions, I'd kind of like you to hold them off to the, to the end and then come back and ask those questions, if you will. But otherwise, if they're pertinent to what we're talking about, that's fine. All right. And the reason being is, uh, as I've mentioned before, the CD will only hold 80 minutes. And I don't want to cut out uh, the ending if that is where the most important stuff is going to be. But um, I'd still like to hold most of the questions just to the end. Okay. All right, let's go through chapter 21 rather quickly. Because this is something that we can neither do anything about, well, we can do one thing about it, but this is Jesus' discussion pretty much of the end times. Now, we've heard about the end times, and we constantly hear about them over and over. <clears throat> but we can't do much about it. Nobody knows when the end is coming. But in this case, in chapter 21, he's really talking about two different kinds of end times. He's talking about the immediate end of things as they were during his lifetime, but they include the destruction of the temple and the turbulent time period between his death and resurrection and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. We're talking about a period of 40 years, the sort of biblical, proverbial 40 years. And that was an extremely turbulent time. But it doesn't say anything about it in here. There's a little bit more in Luke's sequel to the gospel, that is the Acts of the Apostles. But you don't have a lot of the detail. So we have to get that detail out of other sources. And of course, one of the primary sources is the historian Josephus, who gives us a lot of the details that, uh, and practically the only details that there are. Because as I've mentioned before, whenever there is a warring situation, and one nation conquers another in this particular time period. The first thing that the conqueror will do is to destroy the most important buildings and the records of that nation so that it leaves nothing for history. And that is why we have so little history in the Bible because of all the wars and the factions that went on. Uh, the first thing that is done is the destruction of the records. So Josephus gives us a pretty good idea of what's going on. And that is what Jesus is talking about here primarily. Let's start out here. There is an interesting little story that precedes all of this. And that's the story of the widow's contribution. It's very brief. Let's go through 
And when I first read this again, because I've talked this many times, I kind of forgot, why is that in there? It seems to be so out of place. Anyone think about that? How this little vignette, you might say, is apparently out of place, but not quite. When we look at the picture as a whole, we can come back and see what this is all about. Jesus now, in setting the scene, is near the temple, or perhaps in the temple courtyards. And he's with his disciples, and it says here, when he looked up, he saw some wealthy people putting their offerings into the treasury, and he noticed a poor widow putting in two small coins. And he said to the apostles, or the disciples, I assume, I tell you truly, this poor widow put more than all the rest. For those others have made offerings from their surplus wealth. But she, from her poverty, she has offered her whole livelihood. If we are talking about Jesus' death, this is sort of a prelude, you might say, to what Jesus is doing. He is offering his entire life. And why? He is offering it for the salvation of mankind. So this little story about this woman putting in her two small coins, and when we look at the similar story in the other Gospels, we see that some of the Pharisees are going to great uh, lengths making sure everybody knows how much they are putting in, you know? It's like, look at me, I'm putting in all this kind of money here, you know, but the poor lady, she puts in all that she has. Now, this author here, the person that writes this commentary, uh, kind of threw cold water on the whole thing with the last statement at the bottom of this page. And I checked this out, and in three or four other commentaries, there is no such mention made. But he says, Jesus is upset at seeing a poor woman think that God's will demanded making herself destitute so that others could become rich. I'd say it. No way. No. I, I as I said, I looked this up in three uh, other sources, and no one mentions that kind of thing. It is strictly a comparison of putting in what you can afford or what you have left depending on your will and good common sense. Obviously, God is not asking people to become impoverished by donating or contributing to the upkeep or the welfare of the church. And obviously, um, what is contributed does not go necessarily to the um, support of only the priest. There are many other purposes for that. So I'd kind of just, just forget that statement there. But the destruction of the temple is important. The temple in Jerusalem was built 
or at least started by Herod the Great around the year 19 BC. It took 46 years to complete the temple. It was one of the most beautiful and important buildings, not only in Jerusalem uh, or Israel, but in the Mideast. Uh, it was um, an example of the highest forms of architecture, and it was really admired by the Romans as well as the Jews. And it was the center of the Jewish faith. Way back in the 10th century BC, King David stopped the animal sacrifice throughout Israel and said in only one place could animal sacrifice take place authentically, and that would be in Jerusalem and in the temple in Jerusalem. And so for a thousand years, that became the norm. All of the other places of worship were synagogues, houses of prayer, but not temples. Now today that's changed, and you know we've talked about that before. I don't want to get into that. But the temple in Jerusalem was extremely important, a very beautiful building, and honored and so forth and so on. And the Jews were very <clears throat> proud of it. But Jesus says, while some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, Jesus said, all that you see here, the days will come when there will not be a stone left upon a stone that will not be thrown down. And that actually was the end of the Roman wars in the year 70 A.D., when the Romans came in and squashed the rebellion of the Jews that started out with the disagreement of the new Christians and ended into an outright war and persecution of the Christians. And the Romans came in in the year 66 AD and tried to stop it. It took four years, but it finally ended in the destruction not only of the temple, but the city and essentially Israel in total, never to be rebuilt. And this was always looked upon by the Christians as God's withdrawing his approval and covenant and his special relationship with the Jewish people because they rejected Christ, uh, their Messiah. So this did happen, it was very important, and it, the temple was never rebuilt. And it cannot be rebuilt because now the Muslims have claimed the space, and they did this way back in the 5th or 6th century, claimed the space on which the temple was built. They built their own mosque, the Blue Mosque, that sits on that very spot today. So it would be an all-out war um, if anything ever happened to the Blue Mosque, particularly if it was blamed on the Jewish people. But it's more than that. It was a significant uh, sign and symbol that God rejected the Jewish people's not accepting the Messiah that he sent. If we go over into the next section, 
the sign of the end. Now we're talking about the end of the world. Then they asked him, teacher, when will all this happen? What sign will there be that all of these things are about to happen? And he answered, see that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has come. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for such things must happen. It will not uh, be immediately so, or not be immediately the end. That's important. It will not be the end, because he's talking about the end of the world, the end of time and life as we know it. But they are thinking the end of their little world. Remember, their little world was the Roman Empire. Then he said to them, nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. Those, there will be powerful earthquakes, famines and plagues from place to place and awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. All of this takes a lot of time. So we're not talking about the 40 years between the death and resurrection of Christ and the destruction of the temple. We're talking about the end of time of the world. Because, well, because remember, he is, his life has got only a few days to go. And he's still in that same mode of trying to teach his disciples the important things. And actually that comes up here in a few minutes, if you'll just bear with me, okay? All right, now the next section, the coming persecution. We're coming back now to this 40-year period, right, between roughly 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. Before all of this happens, before all of the destructions through the, you know, the wars and the insurrections and all of that stuff, before all of this happens, however, they will seize and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and to the prisons, and they will have you led before kings and governors because of my name. And remember, all of the apostles, with the exception of John the Evangelist, were executed within a few years. John was the only one that lived to a ripe old age. It will lead to your giving testimony. Remember, you are not to prepare your defense beforehand, for I myself shall give you a wisdom in speaking that all of your adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. You will even be handed over by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name but not a hair on your head will be destroyed. By your perseverance, you will secure your lives. As you all must, you probably all are aware of some problem raised when a Jewish acquaintance of yours became a Christian, and more so if he became, or if she became a Catholic. Uh, that automatically set up a lot of problems between families. Many people 
many uh, Jewish people who be, did become Catholic or Christian, particularly in the modern era, uh, are ostracized or considered as good as dead by their own families. And you can understand the anguish and that that kind of situation sets up. All right. But this period that I'm talking about between this 40-year period between 30 AD and 50 AD is something that we really have to understand and appreciate the Christians going through. Most of the Christians started to flee right after the persecutions began. And this was within a few years after Christ's resurrection. Just a few years. And gradually, because the persecution started with being, um, you might say, uh, kept out of or put out of the synagogues, they would not allow the Christians into the synagogues and certainly not into the temple. And this, of course, created a lot of problems because the Jewish people who accepted Christ and Christianity did not immediately cut themselves off from the Jewish traditions. That was not their intent. It was not Christ's intent. Christ wanted all of the Jewish people to accept him as Messiah and accept his teachings. And had they done so, we would have all been Jewish. Uh, no. Uh, but that didn't happen. And unfortunately, what did happen, of course, was they thought they were right. They thought the Christians or those who became Christians were infidels, and they thought they were doing the right thing by expelling them from the temple and eventually persecuting them. When we get into the story of St. Paul and the Acts of the Apostles, well, that's what he was doing. He was persecuting the Christians because he thought they were infidels and that he was doing the right thing. So we can see right there. We don't know exactly how many years after, but it was probably somewhere between five and ten years after Christ's resurrection. Okay. And that created tremendous strife among the Christian people. All right. Josephus tells us that eventually, the blood in the Sea of Galilee made the water run red. That might have been an exaggeration, but um, not too much so. Let's go to the coming of the Son of Man here. There will be signs in, in the sun, the moon and the stars, and the earth May, and on earth nations will be in dismay, perplexed by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will die of fright in anticipation of what is coming upon the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these signs begin to happen, stand erect and raise your heads, because... Your redemption is at hand. This, of course, again, is talking about the end of the world. 
And that's why this is confusing, because it's gone back and forth and back and forth. Right. He's saying, consider the fig tree and all of the other trees. When their buds burst open, you, you see for yourself and know that summer is now near. In the same way, when you see these things happen, know that the kingdom of God is near. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Now we're coming back to this 40-year period again. So you got to be very careful when you read this as to what period of time is he talking about. Be aware that your hearts do not become drowsy from carousing and drunkenness in the anxieties of daily life and that they catch you by surprise, like a trap. For that day will assault everyone who lives on the face of the earth. Be vigilant at all times and pray that you have the strength to escape the tribulations that are imminent and to stand before the Son of Man. So, be careful. What he's really saying, I think this is going back to your question, Bob, is that you've got to be more concerned about how you conduct your life than you are concerned about what's going on in the world. You can't do a lot of things towards changing the world. But what you have to do is watch yourself and be prepared. He really talks about that kind of preparedness throughout all of the gospel. It's important that Christians really are more concerned about the condition of their soul than they are about their livelihood. All right. That's You might say, well, that's easy for him to say. But it's important that you think about it. Our life is more than just what the externals show. Our life is really um, the life of the spirit. Remember, I think we asked someone in here for a glove. Anyone have a glove on tonight? Or has a glove in their pocket of some kind? Well, I wouldn't expect so because the weather's rather pleasant outside tonight. But we had one night in this class, we had somebody that did have a glove. And I put it on. And I said, now, does the glove move? No. It's the hand that moves. And what I'm really saying is, it's the spirit within the glove that is really moving. And if the glove hand does good things, that will be to your benefit. If the glove hand does bad things or omissions that when neglected, things that were neglected and should have been done, we will be held responsible or accountable for it. So it is the hand that lives forever, the soul that lives forever, 
will be accountable. And therefore, it's important that you think about that when you stand before the face of God, the Son of Man. Can you then truly say that my life has been productive, that my life has been held innocent? Now, regardless of what may have transpired in the past, it is from this moment forward that really counts. All right, let's, let's go on to the end of chapter 21. During the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple area. Yet at night, he would leave and stay at the place called the Mount of Olives. And all the people would get up early each morning to listen to him in the temple area. So he continued to preach and teach right up until the last minute. But all of those lessons, you know, and the concern for your individual life is very important. Something that you think should think about. Let's go on to the passion of Christ. Now you're going to be hearing this a couple of times during Holy Week. What I want you to really do is think about it tonight and between now and Holy Week, which is only a couple of weeks away. Because it's the most important event in all of history, the death and resurrection of Christ. And if you don't understand it, then you're going to be missing out on what is important. Chapter 22. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was drawing near, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, the one named Iscariot, who was counted among the twelve. And he went to the chief priests and temple guards to discuss a plan for handing him over to them. They were pleased and agreed to pay him money. He accepted their offer and sought a favorable opportunity to hand him over uh, to them in the absence of a crowd. So as we all know, this is where G Judas betrays Christ in the Garden of, uh, of Eden, uh, rather, in the Mount of Olives, Garden of Eden. Mm. I was thinking of that movie, The Passion of the Christ. Um, there's a scene there, for those of you who have seen it, you might recall, there's a scene there where the, the serpent comes out during that time when Christ is going through this agony in the garden. Well, that is a little bit of liberty, you might say, a poetic license or Hollywood. Uh, but in a way, it's a culmination of something that was said in the book of Genesis, right up in front of the first couple chapters of, of the Bible, where God says that the serpent's head will be crushed 
by the seed of the woman. In other words, the serpent's head, in referring to the devil, will be crushed by Christ. And of course, the death of Christ is when this happens. And so to put a little more dramatic or drama into this movie, you see this serpent winding his way there, coming real close to Christ who is on the ground, and all of a sudden, the heel comes down and crushes the head of the serpent. Uh, very dramatic. Uh, it's a little bit of uh, Hollywood, but it fits. It fits into the occasion. The Passover, we've heard over and over and over the preparations for the Passover. As we all know, the Passover is one of the most important events in Jewish life, then and now. It depicts the time and it is it is part of Jewish life to remember the deliverance of the Jewish people from the hands of the Pharaoh, the Egyptians at the time of Moses. And it has always been uh, considered as one of the, the most important time periods and events or days in the life of the Jewish people. And this was true at the time of Christ. But it is also a point in time when Jesus, you have to remember the importance of this Jewish celebration that goes all the way back to the time of Moses. And when he was trying to get the Israelites released from Egypt, God told him to have the Jewish people take a lamb, slaughter it, and then take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintels of each of their houses. Because according to the last plague, the firstborn of all of the Egyptians would be slaughtered that night, except in those houses where the Jewish people live with the sign of blood on their doorpost. That became a very important symbol. All right, and the idea of the lamb, the slaughtered lamb, being the center of that ceremony is what we have to kind of remember because the lamb was to be a year-old male without blemish. Now, when it says without blemish, it doesn't mean uh, sparkling clean. Uh, because no animal of that kind is sparkling clean. It means without any defect. Okay? In other words, pure. And that was a very important point. This is what Jesus was celebrating now. And what he does during that time period is he takes the bread and then he takes the wine and consecrates that by offering it to the Father. Now, why the bread and wine? Why not the lamb? Because the slaughtered lamb was a sign of 
remission of sin. And Jesus himself is going to take that place by his own body and blood on the cross. He is going to replace the lamb and the significance of the lamb with his own body and blood. Okay. And instead, he's going to replace the offering of bread and wine, which if you go back to the Jewish traditions and the Jewish culture and the book of Leviticus, you will see that the offering of bread and wine was a thanksgiving offering. And if you go to uh, the book of Genesis, you will see that during a uh, special war or battle that Abraham went through and won with the Amalekites, uh, the priest of Midian, my father, Melchizedek, <laughs> uh, came out and celebrated by offering bread and wine to the Father, okay, to God. And so bread and wine was not something new. It was a traditional offering. It wasn't that important or as important as the offering of the lamb. But it was important to those people. Okay, It was a special offering of thanksgiving. And after Christ's death and resurrection, by his offering his own body and blood on the cross, that was significant for the Christians, for those who accepted Christ, for all time. After that, animal sacrifice was of no value because Christ made the supreme sacrifice. And we might say, as some I mentioned last week, that uh, an old friend of mine from Southern California called and couldn't understand, and her very words were, and I wrote them down because... Uh, I wanted to make sure I got them right. She says, why would a loving dad, she put it that way, referring to God the Father, put his son through such an ordeal? Couldn't he just as well snap his fingers and get the job done a different way? Well, she's looking at this, you know, as a mom would, you know, would a father today sacrifice his son for something? And But I said to her, well, you're thinking in earthly terms of a human father offering his son whatever. Remember, though, way back in the time of Abraham, we did have a precedent of Abraham offering his son or agreeing to do so. Luckily, he was stopped. But the whole idea here is this is something that has to be done to satisfy the laws of perfection. Remember, God is perfect. And like many other things, perfection has certain laws. For example, we have the laws of gravity. You all know what the laws of gravity are. Anything that is put up here without support is going to fall, all right? There's other kinds of laws, scientific, uh, whatever, you name it. Perfection has its laws, too. And when perfection is sinned against, as Adam and Eve and the rest of us have done, 
that requires a special kind of perfect offering to a perfect God. Well, mankind is not perfect in any way, shape, or form. I always throw that my kids are, but no one else. Um, but mankind is not perfect, and therefore mankind does not, could not, and would not have anything of significant value to offer back to the Father in exchange for or in reparation of the sins of all mankind. So God himself had to come to this earth in the form of a human being, as Christ was, and offer himself back to the Father. So the human side, the human nature of Christ, represented all mankind being offered back. God, through Jesus Christ, was that perfect offering that replaced the need for the sacrificial lamb that the Jewish people had. And once that was offered back to the Father, the Jewish lamb was no longer necessary. And after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, it totally disappeared out of that culture as far as being the offering in the temple uh, for the uh, life and the sins of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people do not sacrifice animals. In fact, I can't think of any culture that does these days doing a ritual sacrifice. Yeah, you hear about these cults and so forth that occasionally do that, uh, but not um, a well-known and respected uh, faith of any kind. Okay. So what I'm trying to get at is the importance of Jesus dying the horrific death that he died. It was because of our sins and the sins of all mankind that was being wiped away, you might say, and forgiven. That doesn't mean that we don't have uh, a portion to give of ourselves. St. Paul tells us in the letter to the Colossians that we make up in our own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And I thought, see, the first time I read that, how could that be? How could there be anything lacking in the sufferings of Christ? But as I read on and understood, is that Jesus leaves a little part for each of us to play in that offering, and that we all have a part that we must give back to God in reparation for our sins. And that's something that we should think about during this Lent. That is what Lent is all about. The time that we think about giving some of ourselves back in reparation for our sins. But just, well, let me ask, is there any questions uh, offhand that anyone wants to ask? All right. Let's go on to Peter's denial. 
Uh, we have to get back up a little bit, the role of the disciples. Then an argument broke out. You know, Jesus is talking about being betrayed and so forth, and now the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest and so forth. Um, he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are addressed as benefactor, but among you it shall not be. Rather, let the greatest among you be the youngest and the leader of the, as the servant. For who is greater, the one seated at table or the one who serves? And on and on. Um, and he says, Simon, oh, I'm sorry. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed that your own faith may not fail. And once you have turned back, you must strengthen your brothers. And Simon says to him, Lord, I am prepared to go to prison and to die with you. You know, so Peter was always the one to kind of put his foot in his mouth. But he replied, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows this day, you will deny me three times. Now, why would that be put in here? Partly because I think it's important to know that we are all human. We all have weaknesses. Christ recognizes that. And Peter is, you might say, a prime example of weak people. But it was after Pentecost that he was probably the strongest. But during this time, he sort of vacillates uh, between having a, a rather bravado uh, voice and being very weak. Jesus then goes out, well, let, let me back up here. He doesn't, Luke doesn't really mention much of the details of the Last Supper. But the Last Supper was important for several reasons. Not only was it required as part of the Jewish ritual, Jewish culture, and within that there were, well, the writer of this book says three cups, in the modern Jewish Passover dinner, there are four cups of wine. Each has its own special meaning. All right. But if you read all of the Gospels and put them sort of together, you'll see that Jesus only consumes three of the cups of wine and then leaves for the Garden of Olives. He doesn't finish the Seder service as it should be done. And according to Jewish culture, if you don't finish the entire um, service, you have sin. It is against Jewish law to not complete the entire, unless you're deathly ill or something of that kind. But Jesus and his disciples leave before the last cup, which <clears throat> is a cup of final blessing. Right. But if you remember, on the cross, Jesus asks for something to drink, I thirst, and they give him uh, wine on a sponge, 
And then from that point, he says, it now has been completed. Those are the final words of the Jewish Seder. It is now complete. Now, Jesus means that he has completed the transformation of the Jewish Seder, the Passover, onto his death on the cross. And that has now taken the place for Christians instead of the Jewish Seder. In past years, when we were teaching, particularly at St. Rose, I would conduct a Jewish Seder uh, a week or so just before Easter. And it was always very interesting. And Connie back there used to help me out, and we'd have uh, oh, about as many people as we have in here. And, uh, well, Jean and Betty were there many years, and uh, Eleanor and Jerry, so and several of you were there. And uh, I would always cook the lamb, uh, two whole legs of lamb, and everybody would bring something, and it would be a, a very fun evening. But what we would do is we would change some of the words in the Christian, in the Jewish service uh to sort of give it a Christian flavor. And then we'd kind of discuss how many of the words in the Jewish Seder are now embedded into our Catholic Mass. Um, so it, it was very nice. It was a little difficult to do it in here because a larger group, and we didn't have quite <clears throat> the setup here, whereas the room that we had there was set up rather um, a little more compact, but um, it just lends itself to a, a very nice evening. The Jewish Seder is not a sad occasion. It is a very joyous occasion because they're celebrating a liberation of their people from <clears throat> the slavery of Egypt. What we should be celebrating at Easter is our liberation of slavery to sin. It's the same kind of thing. Many of the same reasons that the Jewish people celebrate the Seder is the same reasons that we should celebrate Easter. One is an earthly remembrance, and ours is a spiritual remembrance. Very important. Why did Jesus have to be crucified on the day of Passover? I think I've already covered that in a way because he is really replacing the sacrificial lamb. In fact, in Christian cultures, Jesus is often referred to as the Lamb of God, meaning that he has replaced the earthly lamb, remember it could be lamb or goats, because people did eat goats in those days, and I suppose some cultures still do. Um, <clears throat> but it was important that Christ die on the day of Passover, because it is fulfilling that ritual. Why was it important that he die outside the walls of Jerusalem. Anyone know? Yeah. 
Exactly. All the prophets were killed by their own people outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Yes. And Christ followed that tradition. It was important. <coughs> when we get to the point of Christ going to the Garden of Eden, Garden of Garden of, of uh, the Mount of Olives, let's put it that way. All right. Remember, the Mount of Olives was a cemetery. All right. It was also an olive grove, but it was a cemetery. Okay. Well, maybe so. It's, yeah. And it was here, really, that the suffering of Christ took place, the, the true suffering, where it is said that he had such a, a tremendous uh, upheaval of his entire body, both spiritual and physical, that his sweat became like drops of blood. Uh, there is a uh, biological or medical term for that, and it is not totally rare, it's totally unheard of, but it is extremely rare, let's put it that way, but not uh, unheard of, that a person could be sweating blood uh, because of fear and turmoil and anguish and all of that. But remember, he was human. I've had people say, well, he was God. You know, it didn't really bother him. He just was going through the motions. Uh-uh. He was a human being, very much, like all of us. And he even asked that the Father, <coughs> the Father to let this chalice pass from him, if it would be possible, but not his will, but the Father's will. Because, again, this goes back to the idea of the laws of perfection. It required a perfect offering of humanity to the Father. And Jesus, being the God-man, was perfect. The only thing on this earth that was truly perfect and worthy to be accepted by the Father. The way of the cross, the way of the cross, remember, we often see Christ carrying this nice piece of wood, looks like it just came from Home Depot, uh, nice and clean and so forth and so on. Uh-uh. It was probably just the crossbar, and it was probably just a piece of log hewn out of an old tree that had been used for the same purpose many, many times before. So it wasn't clean and neat, all of that. And Jesus didn't look like he just came out of a shower, you know, beating and spitting and whipping and 40 lashes with whip that had metal pieces involved in it. Does not leave the victim looking very nice and clean. So in his trials, and suffering, and including the crown of thorns, uh, he looked pretty beat up. And he goes, carries this wooden beam 
all the way up to the hill of Calvary, outside of the walls of old Jerusalem, to his death. And of course, we have these seven last words of Christ. We won't go through all of them, but some of the ones that are really important are the fact that Christ really is concerned about his mother, and so he asks St. John the Evangelist to take his mother into his home, and in a way he gives his mother to all of us through St. John. So she, in a way, becomes our mother as well. He cries out at another time, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we've talked before, this was due to the fact that he was human. He was suffering. He was gasping for air. They say when a person hangs in this position, whether there's ropes around the arms as well as the nails in the hands, or if it was just nails in the hands, it draws the body down from the weight and presses on the lungs. And therefore, the person eventually dies of asphyxiation more than anything else. So he's a human being again, hanging there like a piece of meat, you might say. Anybody who goes to Europe, well, not so much anymore, but in days gone by, you would go by a butcher in Europe and you'd see all of this meat hanging right outside on hooks and so forth. It wasn't always that uh, appetizing, but that's the way they lived, particularly when they're days before refrigeration. I know, because I lived there for four years, or five, or something like that. Anyways, uh, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's not entirely being despondent in a way. What he's really doing is reciting Psalm 22. The first words are, just those, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read Psalm 22, you will see that it really details down to the casting of lots for his clothes, the fact that his bones were not broken, and so many more points that only could apply to Christ at this particular time. And then the second part of that Psalm is a victory song that really is a prediction of the resurrection three days later. And it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer that I would hope you would all take time in the next week or so to read and study. Not very long, but it's so important that you really understand it, that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He tells us in the Gospel of John that he, that no one takes his life from him. He's laying down his life on his own and that he will take it up again. Um, so this whole idea of, uh, as my friend from down south said, why would a loving dad put his son through such an ordeal? Well, he, he, Christ did it out of love for the Father and love for mankind because 
Had he not done it, there would be no way that mankind would ever be able to return to the Father in heaven because of this breach that was created by mankind's sin. So I tried to explain, and I think she got it by the time we were finished with our phone conversation. But that's something that I think is important for you to realize, that Christ was human, a human being, but he was also God, a perfect God. And in sacrificing his human life for the sake of the laws of perfection, he then paid the price that we could not pay because none of us are perfect. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. After three hours, Christ... Oh, yes, Maria? Uh, you've got a, a very good point there, and I, to be honest, don't have a good answer for that. Uh, you're right. Mary was as pure as any human being could be. But she wasn't divine. And that's the main difference right there. She wasn't divine. And it took a divine purity rather than a human purity to satisfy the sins of mankind. That's as good as an explanation as I can give you. Uh, she Many people ask me, well, the Gospels all say that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene as the first person, right? Why didn't he appear to his mother, Mary? Well, we don't know that he didn't, and we kind of suspect that he probably did, but it was always kept private. Um, as far as we know, the writings that we have, that we call the Gospels, only refer to Mary Magdalene as being the first human being that Christ appears to after his resurrection. But we suspect that he probably appeared to his mother, but in private. Yeah. No, I can't give you any better explanation than that. You're right. Mary was as pure as any human being could possibly be, but she was still human. Anyone else have a question? Well, she had to accept what was happening because she understood. And he told her that it was for a reason. Now, whether he told her all the details or not, we don't know. But she was patient. And she still suffered, though, to see your your son, you know, hang like an animal on on a tree uh, would devastate anybody, regardless of you know how pure she was. Um, but then again, she realized that there was a reason for it, and she would find out. And I'm sure that he probably appeared to her. Uh, after the resurrection and to comfort her. We have very little, um, in fact, there isn't, to my knowledge, anything in any of the writings referring to Mary after the resurrection. 
except that she was in one place in the Acts of the Apostles. She was with the Apostles at the time of the uh, Holy Spirit's descent, and he, she was with other women uh, at the crucifixion. But there was no comments by Mary at all. Any other questions? All right, as we know, the hanging on the cross lasted approximately three hours. It's amazing that even got to that point. But it lasted approximately three hours. And why three hours? We're told that from the time of about noon to the time of three o'clock, Three o'clock was the traditional Jewish prayer time when people would enter the temple or the synagogue and pray for the remission of sin. So these time periods coincided with that. All right. At the time that Jesus bows his head and dies, there is a great earthquake and trembling and so forth and so on. And the veil of the temple... Now, the veil of the temple, the temple was thought to be approximately a cube of 18 feet in each direction, width, breadth, and height. So that veil would have to have been approximately 18 feet or close to it in height. But it was ripped from the top to the bottom. Now, that could not have been done by human hands because, first of all, they wouldn't have known that it was going to be to get a ladder ready to get up there. It couldn't have been done anyways because the veil of the temple was a very heavy material. If you think about the drapes or the, uh, yeah, the drapes in the, in theaters, most of them are fireproof or very thick and so forth. Um, same kind of thing. All right. So, many people feel that it was the hand of God that ripped the veil of the temple from top to bottom. And many other signs came about at the same time. But it's important to understand that according to Jewish laws, that anyone that died had to be buried that same day particularly if the next day was the Sabbath. And it was. Remember, the Sabbath began from Friday evening at sundown to Saturday evening at sundown. And so, according to Jewish law, anybody that died that Friday had to be buried before sundown. And so, Joseph of Arimathea and another man uh, asked Pilate for the body of Christ and took it down, cleaned it as best they could, and buried it right away. Uh, important. And of course, uh, the Romans uh, rolled a big stone and stationed a couple soldiers outside because of the uh, temple rulers being fearful that the apostles were going to come and steal this body and then say he was risen from the, from the dead. Well, it happened anyways. 
And we'll get into that uh, next week when we talk about the resurrection in chapter 24. I'm concerned about our time because I want to really get your questions out. Any questions? Yes, uh, Eleanor. Very much so, yes. Uh, the Trinity was never thought about, let alone understood, before Christ. Christ, this is one of the things that he reveals himself being the Son of Man versus the Father whom the Jewish people had always worshipped in the past but was not aware of the Trinity. And so, yes, that was one of the things that uh, Jesus came to explain as best he could and did. It took, of course, many years by theologians to try to delve into it a little deeper, um, but I don't think they were any more successful than anyone else was then or now. But you're right, the very important aspect of Christ's mission. Anyone else? Yes, uh, Jose. Uh, Jose's question is referring to Jesus. One of the last words of Jesus on the cross is, I thirst. And he asked, does that have any connection with the living water um, in the story of the woman at the well in John's Gospel? Um, no, I don't think so. But You've got a point there. Jesus as human being was thirsty, obviously. All of that he went through uh, would have caused anybody to be extremely dehydrated and extremely thirsty. But there's another way of looking at it also, the spiritual side. I thirst for human beings, for people to commit themselves to the Father, you know, to turn their minds and their hearts to him and to what he was doing. So he thirsted far more for the love and for the souls of mankind than he did for human liquids. Uh, so I think you have a point there. Yeah. That's about as far as I can go on that subject because we have no way of knowing. Uh, if there's any more to it than that. Yes, that's a good point. One of the other words, uh, last words, is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he's in referring uh, to the soldiers uh, that were immediately involved in the crucifixion, as well as those that uh, had scourged him and so forth, treated him so cruelly beforehand. Um, they did not know or realize that he was the Son of God. Uh, he thought They thought he was just a criminal and they were sort of doing their job. Uh, but it goes much further than that. Uh, his whole act of the crucifixion was an act of forgiveness for all of mankind. That's what it was all about, really. It was forgiving mankind 
for all of their sins. That didn't mean that everybody had a free ride after that. There were certain uh, conditions attached to it. But the basic forgiveness which permitted mankind to then return to the Father is what I'm really talking about and I think Gene is referring to. Um, if you have that diagram, anyone have that diagram that we gave out at the first meeting? This one here? Yours might be a different color because I've used different colors to reproduce this thing over the years. But if you really look at it, the whole purpose of Christ coming to earth began with the creation. And then continued through his particular time period and his role. And then continues now because his death and resurrection did not end the whole plan of salvation. The plan of God's plan of salvation continues on. Um, God's plan of salvation continues on until the end of time. With the Holy Spirit picking up the role that Christ left. Christ as the human being could not remain with uh, as a human being on earth for all of these years. But he remains through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And we should engage the Holy Spirit in all of our spiritual efforts and not forget him. It used to be, particularly before the Second Vatican Council, that the Holy Spirit was often called, or the Holy Ghost was often called the forgotten God, uh, because people didn't quite know what his role was or understand it. I think that's become much more clear uh, since Vatican II. There's been a tremendous amount of uh, theology developed since that time period. But it is something that we should never forget. The role of the Holy Spirit continues the effort of Christ to return us to the Father. And that is where we should draw our uh, our strength from. Remember, we're not talking about three different gods. We're talking about one God who had three natures. No, Christ... Uh, Judas could have changed his mind and somebody else would have eventually done the same thing because remember the Pharisees were really out to get Christ so one way or the other it would have happened it just was that Judas was the weak link you might say in the chain of the apostles but if he had not done it or if he had changed his mind and he had the power to do that. I'm sure that the Holy Spirit was working overtime with Judas and he still rejected. You're right. Uh, Susan's point here is, is that Judas was more or less representative of all mankind sinning. We have all sinned. Right? When we lie or when we don't own up to our Catholic faith in all of its beliefs, 
as a lot of our politicians have shown us in the last campaign, uh, we offend God. If, if we deny him in any way, shape, or form, we are adding to the sins of his, I mean, we're adding to the suffering of his passion, death, and death. All right? So we cannot in any way excuse ourselves. We all took part in that. And Judas kind of represents each one of us in our little part. Unfortunately, uh, you know, he suffered. And in despair, he kills himself. Uh, we can't make a judgment there because despair of that degree uh, can do strange things to the person's mind. So I don't think that we can uh, say that, you know, he's the worst person in, in hell. Uh, I don't think that that would be fair. At the same time, we can't say uh, that God is going to forgive him. The forgiveness was offered, but it appears that it was also rejected because, or shown by his hanging himself um, later. Well, you got to remember that he was always surrounded by a lot of people, particularly in the Jerusalem area. He was always surrounded. So what they wanted, and they were, of course, fearful of the people. It says so in the, in the Gospels many places that they would have done this earlier or they would have done it at different times, but they were fearful of the people. So what the agreement with Judas was that he would show the Pharisees a time and a place when Jesus would be almost alone. It was between the Jewish, it started out as being between the Jewish people and the Christians. And then it escalated into involving the Romans. So there was two major battles with the Romans in that 40-year time period. Right. I don't remember the dates of the first one, but the second one lasted four years from the year 66 A.D. until 70 A.D. Well, that's what, that's what, the, the Rose Boy, that's what Jesus and, of course, his disciples were doing. And, of course, they started this journey to Jerusalem months before and stopped at all these little towns along the way. But Jesus knew what was in store for him all along. Yeah. Yeah. It was a large town. At one time, it was a very prosperous uh, port. Yeah. Uh, Josephus is a very interesting, but not easy to read book. Yeah. I have a copy of it. Maybe I'll bring it in next week. Uh, you can take a look at it. It's, uh, it's quite interesting, but not easy to read. Certainly not uh, something that you would want to take on a vacation or anything. 